This is a podcast by The Straits Times. Hey, you're listening to In Your Opinion. I'm Gabrielle Chan. And I'm Zazali Abdul Aziz. We are your co-hosts for this episode where we will examine the hotly debated issue of recreation and play in Singapore's shared community spaces like Void Decks. In an article I wrote for ST recently, and we'll have the links to it in our podcast show notes, the picture spoke a thousand words. A barricaded Void Deck under a housing board block in Woodlands. The town council decided to do this because the kids playing were being noisy and rowdy even after they were told stop. Then... More and more pictures of barricaded play spaces were shared online. A basketball net that was boarded up and a futsal court that had its gates locked. Each came with an explanation that this was due to complaints of errant balls hitting and injuring passersby, as well as noise complaints. They even led to a parliamentary question and reply on January 9, 2024. Nominated MP Syed Harun Al-Habsi spoke of the importance of give and take in boosting social cohesion in common spaces in residential estates. Minister of State for National Development, Faisal Ibrahim, responded. Some intervention may seem harsh, but they are necessary to balance the interests of all residents. At times, despite the work done to bring parties together to resolve issues amicably, there are sometimes parties who may be unwilling to compromise. In such cases, town councils and relevant agencies may have no choice but to intervene directly to ensure a conducive living environment. So how are we to reconcile this? Opinions remain divided. No one seems to have an answer, yet the situation demands one. With us is Associate Professor Lavanya Kathiravelu from the School of Social Sciences at Nanyang Technological University. She specialises in sociology with a focus on urban diversity in Singapore and other cities. Welcome to the show, Prof. Thank you so much for your invitation. Very happy to be here. Well, let's dive straight into it. Lavi, this is a topic that has been around in Singapore actually for decades. And this recent uh, discussion, this most recent one, triggered by the photo Gabby talked about, has been uh, particularly sustained, even leading to a parliamentary question and reply. Why do you think people feel so strongly about a topic like this? Yeah, I think... You know, like you say, the use of public space has been something that people have been passionate about for a very long time. But I think now, because there's increasing, um, I guess the built environment is changing very quickly in Singapore. There's a lot more built up public spaces. Mm. And maybe because there's a perceived loss of open public space, this is becoming uh, more of an issue. We, we also have a growing population, which uh, is making Singapore more crowded, maybe more dense space to live in. So this might also be why these reasons are becoming more pertinent or people are feeling this at a visceral level more these days. And just just to mm-hmm. share, Gabby wrote, uh, obviously, uh, our original first mm-hmm. uh, article about the barricaded void decks uh, in Woodlands. And then uh, mm-hmm. I had a comment piece as well a couple of weeks later. I received uh, a surprising number of emails from our readers and our news desk also received a bunch of emails. And, and it was split very much uh, 50-50. You know, uh, one half of them would say, thank you for writing this. It needs to be discussed. It needs to be said. You know, your piece resonates with us. And the other half, you know, basically they were triggered. Lah, you know, and, and, you know, some even sent photos of, you know, dirty void decks and says, and say, you sure you want to let, you know, kids play and stuff like that. But I think to me, my whole point of 
exploring that in in my opinion piece is not so much about letting kids play football. Uh, as you mentioned, I think it's it's this loss of openness and you know on, honestly spontaneity when it comes to to play and recreation in Singapore. You, you mentioned the built up facilities. I mean, yes, we should be thankful for such facilities being around, but at the same time, I feel like I I don't know something just doesn't sit well with me telling kids, hey, you want to play this, go here. You want to you want to do this, go here. Uh, we, we had a chat earlier. We are both parents of young children. Um, yeah, I wouldn't want my daughter to be told do A, B, C, blah blah blah. You know, I want her to figure things out on her own at times. You know, and I feel like increasingly, you know, we we aren't able to do that in Singapore. Yeah, I was just telling Prof, telling Lavi earlier that, you know, when my dad, my dad uh, plays football on the weekends and he also finds it really tough to get certain spots because, you know, like Turf City is closing and also he doesn't have fields like how he used to play in Farrer Road, you know, where it was very sort of ad hoc, anyone can join in, mm-hmm. there were no rules, it was shirts versus skins and they had a very sort of free play, no rules and we could they just swap in and swap out. And I think this kind of freedom and spontaneity is often lost when, you know, structure comes into play. But I think that also is something to be brought up because, I mean, Singapore is becoming, like you mentioned earlier, more dense. You know, there is a, there's a scarce space. We do have a need for this structure, right? So maybe, uh, Lavi, could you elaborate more on, you know, what this means for play in the future? You know, how does this translate into um, balancing needs of the society? Mm. Yeah, I, I think balance is is definitely something that is important, right? That we need to to think about because we have a growing population and space is not really... We, we have no um, ability to increase our space uh, to that extent, right? So we have to think about prescribing certain spaces for play. Um, otherwise, a lot of these spaces might be used for commerce, for economic needs, for housing. So we do need to think about um, spaces for play. And I think, you know, in many ways, this has been done in Singapore. But perhaps, you know, we also need to shift and think about how we can make these spaces more open so they're not just for one type of play, Mm. like just for street football, you know, fiber-side football or for basketball, but how we can enable these spaces to be more maybe open green spaces that kids and people, whether older or younger, can appropriate for their own use either collectively or, you know, at different times of the day, right? And we think of like some of the most successful places, I think, in Singapore, spaces that have um, been green, right? Park spaces. And increasingly over the years, also we've seen how um, there's been a very progressive move to uh, further green, you know, pl- things like canals into uh, make them into more uh, waterways. And we've seen, of course, our very famous otter families uh, living in these spaces. And I feel like these are some of the most successful open spaces in Singapore. And they're often used for different purposes by different groups of people, right? So in the morning, you see older folk using it for Tai Chi, maybe some people running. In, in the evenings, kids go and, and play. And they're, they're able also to to use these spaces more creatively for more, um, not just, oh, this is a football court, so we have to play football here. But, you know, we can play catching, we can play, yeah. um, you know, diff- different types of games, right? Hide and seek. And then, you know, maybe on the weekends, migrant workers use this space to picnic or to play cricket. So I think these multi-use spaces are one way in which we can think about prescribing spaces for play and for leisure, but not for just one purpose, yeah. right? Um, but for multi-use. So when you talk about balance and structure, I wonder if you can speak to this quote from Apple co-founder Steve Wozniak that I came across uh, recently. It's actually back from 2011. He said, 
structured societies like Singapore, you know, they, they, they tend to not produce creative people, great artists, musicians, writers, athletes. Quote, all the creative elements seem to disappear. What do you make of this? Well, I mean, firstly, I, Singapore is the kind of favourite poster child for everyone to, you know, to this, to say, oh, there's no creativity here. And, I, you know, I think we do have great artists, we have great poets and, and writers and musicians. So, you know, I think that's unfair, firstly. Um, but but I, I think there is some truth to the fact that too much structure does limit creativity, right? I think... It doesn't mean that we have to do completely away with structure, but if we look at, say, um, studies by psychologists who look at how young young children think and how they develop, right? They need boundaries, obviously, but they also need space to to be creative and not to be too prescribed in the ways in which they can play and learn. So if we can extrapolate from that, right, we can think about how um, we want a more creative society, a more creative population, able to problem solve in, in different ways. And I think Encouraging creative play is part of this, right? Allowing people to play in different ways, uh, not just the ways in which the the built environment prescribes for them. So I think there's some truth to that, but and and we can and it's important to think right about not just our built environment, but how our education system, other kind of structures also come together to enable a more creative uh, society. Yeah, I think on that point, mm. I wanted to bring up the fact like you are right about how Singapore has, we always just defer back to the system and the structure that we mm. have developed. So I think this also plays into how, you know, many of these issues that are brought up, for example, the gated basketball courts or the gated futsal courts or the pins and the barricades in the void deck, it often stems from the fact that Singaporeans, they go to the town council when anything happens. Like any sort of neighbourhood arguments or intolerance happens, the first instinct is to town council. I'm going to complain to my MP. I, I am not going to talk to my neighbour, but I'm going to go straight to the town council. So I think that is also something like a structure that we have sort of created and this culture that we have created of always telling on our neighbours and you know, not, not allowing space for conversations. So yeah, how do you think actually this contributes to the whole issue at hand? Yeah, like Gabby, I think you brought up a really good point there. You hit the nail on the head. I think it's a it's kind of a vicious cycle, right? Because we are used to going to authorities like the town council or police or or whoever it is to to solve the problem. That limits then the kind of interactions that we might have yes. and develop within our community and you know, stops us from having those conversations. So it's, it's kind of this vicious cycle. So, and I think that's, you know, we're, we're used to the the state giving us directives of, you know, how to how to behave maybe. But perhaps town councils are taking a too hands-on or heavy-handed approach. Mm. And, you know, in one, on one hand, we can't blame them, right? They have to respond to complaints. But on the other hand, I think it would be great if we as a community neighbourhoods could develop our own mechanisms, right? Yeah, like knock on your neighbour's door and say, hey, can you turn the volume down a little? Yes. Or um, can you tell your kids to stop playing at 8pm, right? It's like because my older father needs to rest or something. So we need to, I think, get better at developing these mechanisms to self-regulate and to make compromises within our own community. And this could lead to much better social cohesion, I think. You know, we'll feel stronger as a community when we can work together that way. So so this lack of compromise, mm. I mean, it's, it's also, you can frame it as intolerance. Mm. Do you think that it's also a result of this, Singaporeans having this like, not in my backyard syndrome? You know, I mean, I, I'm sure 
a lot of people who may support this idea of oh let let the kids play, but let's say it happens in their place, then they're like, hey, you know what? Maybe I'm 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 not so keen on letting kids have you know free free reign on what they want to do. You know that kind of thing. It's it, and and again this this cuts across not just football but every kind of play. In fact, not even play. You know when it comes to recreation in uh, general, I remember um, coming across an article in. December, where uh, a resident of uh, Bedok Reservoir uh, held her last like neighborhood Christmas party. She she's been doing it since 2011, and she had the last one at the end of last year because she said you know people were accusing her of using the neighborhood's electricity and whatnot, you know, and stuff like that. And it's like she's bringing joy to the neighborhood, you know. Why 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 are people just being like this, you know? So so what do you think has led to this? intolerance. Mm. Well, I think firstly, it's not just Singaporeans, right, mm. who are who are intolerant. I think these these NIMBY, right, not in my backyard syndrome yeah. happens across the world. So we're not unusual in that sense or especially selfish. But I think it it is a lot to do with increasing individualization in society. So like sociologists, you know, talk about the shift, right, in terms of how people think of themselves not so much anymore as members of larger communities or even extended family groups, but increasingly we're becoming individualized, right? And we see this in terms of how people live, for example. Mm. We live more in nuclear families yeah. or, um, you know, Singapore also has a lot of single people or couples with no kids who um, live on their own. So the extended family model is diminishing. So and the idea of living within a extended kampung community has also, of course, diminished over the, the years, right? So the, the bonds that we have are different now than used to be there. So I think that's one reason that people are are more protective because people value their individual space and freedoms a lot more and people thought of themselves maybe as more embedded within communities in the past and physical communities like neighborhood yeah. communities. Maybe now we think of ourselves maybe as embedded in virtual communities online or, you know, um, work communities, but less in, in that neighborhood sense. And the second thing I think is to do with the cost, right, of residential property in, in mm. Singapore, but also, you know, the the fact that people pay a lot for their homes, right? Then they want more control maybe over these spaces as that's well. That's entitlement though, right? I mean, at the end of the day, right? I mean, you you feel like you're entitled, you, you paid, I, I'm entitled to get this, 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 you know, and, and, and it comes with what I pay for, right? I guess, I mean, it's a, I mean, it's expected to some extent, right? People mm. feel like they put a lot of effort and, and sure. uh, money into this investment. It's some, probably the largest investment for most people in their lives. So there is, that you know, maybe there are more expectations in line with that compared to before where, you know, housing was not such a large part of people's expenditure, perhaps. So, you know, we also have to look at the kind of material conditions. Right? Yeah. And I think also when when you become so self-reliant over the mm-hmm. years, like community organising and like cohesion is not at the forefront of your mind. But I think that is where, you know, these developments and these urban planning can come into play, where they actually create these spaces for people to, so not, not to force them to work with their community, but to really create these spaces to allow this sort of, community to come together in a very spontaneous way. So, for example, like below my block, mm. I have a group of old folks who play table tennis together every morning. Oh, wow. And I walk past and I see them and I say, because the town council has put a table tennis table there, it has actually allowed residents to come together spontaneously, you know. And this is actually a move away from self-reliance and a, and a 
spontaneous shift towards community organisation that, mm. that, that is created out of developing that space for them. I, I do think that this is something that we can actually look to, you know, and it's, it's more of a, it's like a shift to what you said, you know, or creating that multi-purpose use space mm. where, where it's like a hint of what free play looks like mm. right now. Mm. Yeah. So maybe on that point, I did want to bring up the fact that there, there are actually these spaces in Singapore, for example, like playgrounds. Right, like playgrounds in in estates. And that is a space that I think HDB and MND have really focused on creating. But I wanted to ask whether you think, you know, are these playgrounds enough to mm. create this sort of spontaneous encounters with your neighbours and with your community? Yeah. Mm. I think playgrounds still still encourage encounters with neighbours and, and community, especially because kids are a great way to encourage interaction. Kids often play with each other without necessarily knowing each other. So then, you know, this encourages conversations between neighbours who might not necessarily speak to each other. But increasingly, I think we've seen these playgrounds become more codified in terms of how they are structured, right? So, I mean, partly this is an interest of maybe safety and maintenance. We see less sand, we see more of this um, plastic, um, plastic structures, you know, different to the older playgrounds, you know, yeah. the ones that have been listed like as mm-hmm. heritage monuments, you know, the old Topayo one, <laughs> yeah. the yeah, dragon. Yeah, yeah. yeah and, and that, in some ways, I think that also affects the kind of play possible in these spaces mm. because, and, and there's a tendency for all of them to also look like each other, right? There's a kind of uniformity yes. to these playgrounds where I think in the past there was much more, in you know, different neighbourhoods that quite unique playground spaces. I mean, there, there are obviously good reasons for this, you know, whether it's cost or safety, um, but also, you know, I think more open spaces, not just with playground structures, but just with, with more open structures that kids can use in more creative ways could also be, I think, encourage different kinds of play, right? If, if, if social uh, integration does not happen as, I guess, regularly um, as, as in the past, uh, do you think... Singapore could be a more polarised society in maybe 20, 30 years? Or is that a bit looking too far, you know, a bit fear-mongering a bit almost, you know, to, to, to even consider that thought? Yeah, I mean, I, 20, 30 years, who knows, right? Mm. And and I think social cohesion is affected by so many things. Yeah. Built environment is one. Yeah. Uh, and on the whole, our, our housing estates have been hugely successful, right, in encouraging people to live in very dense conditions, side by side. You know, when, when I was doing fieldwork, for example, in uh, Jurong West, right, and this is a neighbourhood with lots of new migrants, the playground was one of the spaces where new migrant mothers could seek advice about, like, where should I send my kid to school? Mm. And, and from more established residents, right? So I think in many ways, it still acts as a space where, where this kind of organic networks are built, social cohesion is built, and, you know, not, not in, in these more top-down prescribed ways. So... Yeah, I, I I think polarization could happen maybe when there is more class inequality as well. Mm. But yeah, it's it's hard to say. You know, there's there's our local conditions, but we also think about larger geopolitical, you know, larger globalization, um, what's happening in the world, right? But I think you know we're yeah, we're doing a relatively good job. Yeah, certainly. <laughs> but I think that's exactly the point that like we are making about these spaces being so valuable. Like you mentioned, mm-hmm. like you can just go to the playground and talk to us for advice from other parents, right? That is exactly the value of these open shared spaces. You know, like you don't need 
a room to sit down. You don't need a forum. You can just talk to your neighbour. So this is really like the essence of why this issue is so important, you know, mm. the fact that these spaces are more than just areas for play and for, you know, weddings or, or gatherings, but it's really just a space for, you know, building that rapport with your neighbours and to get value added that you won't get from reading online. You know, you get real yeah. life experiences from grandfathers, from aunts and uncles who take care of generations of kids. I think mm. that is really where the value of of these spaces lie. Exactly, I think it's, it's yeah. the unexpected knowledge, right? So when you when you look for something online, you are you know what you're looking for. Yeah. Hmm. And it's you might come across something you're not looking for, but in a park when you're just having a conversation with someone, someone mentions something and you might not have thought about it, but you know, like uh, I didn't know there was a Halloween party happening in my local park until mm. I spoke to, you know, somebody else in the park when my kid was playing there. And I was mm. like, and it was a fantastic party, you know, um, something that was also community organized and then the, the residence council kind of also helped us with. But yeah, you know, these are, these are kind of unexpected pieces. I mean, this is not... This was not an important piece of information, sure, but sometimes sure. you find out something yes. that's really important, like oh look, you can access this service, um, or you know you can you can go to the polyclinic for this and that, right? So, yeah, yeah. I think it's unexpected that that these spaces also enable. Lovey, earlier in our conversation, you mentioned how the authorities may be a bit too heavy-handed in dealing with some of the complaints of the residents, as, as uh, Gabby mentioned. You know, a lot of these cases are actually from a, a result of residents saying, oh, it's too noisy, it's too dirty, and, uh, it's a, a danger, so on and, and so forth. Do you feel that the authorities should have a shift in attitude or policy, I suppose, and or policy? Because, uh, you know, w- one of the things that also irked me was, you know, after the Woodlands Barricade, there was uh, a case of uh, a street soccer court in uh, Kampung Chai Chi that was locked up. Uh, and there was a notice and, you know, the MP there was proudly proclaiming taking action for residents, you know what I mean? So, and it, it was almost like he was taking pride in the fact that, hey, I'm doing this for you. And I, I, I something just annoyed me so much about that because I feel like it's more often than not, I find it, it it's a case of a minority of residents and it doesn't represent the whole view of the entire community. But, you know, the authorities or the powers that be, maybe they feel they have to act on it. Another example is from a couple of years ago, a local football club, they set up an academy and they pumped millions to to produce this facility in Mata Road. Next thing you know, there's reports of a a complaint from residents saying, oh, after 8pm, they're making too much noise. It's a for-purpose football facility. So I was kind of... Flummoxed and, and, you know, after that, you know, having conversations with the, the people who run the place, they actually tell me, oh, you know what, it's actually not residence. It's one guy who lives in, you know, they can they point to his unit and they tell me it's, it's that guy and he keeps repeating his complaint, you know, and the authorities try to talk to him, but he still keeps calling them. So we have to, to meet in the middle and, you know, blah, 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 you know, and, and we try to engage him and so on. I, I feel like the authorities should sort of like, take a step back and like, you know, not be so keen on, on you know, doing stuff like locking up and boarding up and, you know, putting signs up and, and stuff like that. Do you think that this should happen also or, or is them acting for residents fair? Yeah, I mean, this is a, I think, interesting question, right? Because often, like you said, I think it might be a vocal minority who are complaining or voicing their unhappiness about a particular use of space and I mean, it's hard to get an idea of the entire neighbourhood, right? Yep. And often the entire neighbourhood maybe doesn't want to be consulted. Not everybody is invested in sure. particular spaces, right? Yeah. So, um, but yeah, I think there needs to be some, not instant reactions, you know, and not a fear, I think, of, of residents. I mean, obviously, you know, MPs 
they their residents are voters as well. So they also have to think about, you know, sure. keeping their voters happy, right? Mm-hmm. Which is good because they're civil servants. They need to respond to um, the residents' complaints. But I think, yeah, it needs to be taken maybe more with a more uh, considered approach, yeah. perhaps, and not just reacting to yeah. a few residents. Yeah. But, you know, think, thinking, okay, can maybe you can talk about this with the club yourself instead of the MP or the town council intervening. You know, maybe both parties can come to some kind of conclusion and a kind of silent mediator that observes, right, doesn't really get involved in the proceedings so that we also develop our own capacities to deal with these issues, right, rather than always relying on an outside mediator to solve um, these very local level community issues. Yeah. Yeah. So I think you're right, you know, that these issues, for example, will always stand. Like, for example, noise pollution, Mm -hmm. it will always exist. People will always complain that they need to rest when children want to play. People will always complain that as an elderly person walks by, they might get hit with a ball. So I think the crux of the matter, like what you mentioned, is to be able to have open and honest conversations Mm -hmm. that don't require the voice of someone who is a mediator, you know. So how do you think we can actually cultivate this culture of conversation among neighbours or among people in the community? You know, Mm. what approach can we take to actually encourage these kind of open and honest conversations that don't require such knee-jerk reactions from the town council or don't require such heavy-handed approaches Mm. from the MPs? Yeah. I mean, it's it's kind of cliched, but of course we have to start when people are young, right? Um, With, you know, developing channels of communication or teaching kids how to communicate. And I think this is, you know, happening to, to some extent already, you know, teaching people how to communicate in a, a fair way, um, how to resolve conflict. And also, I think we need from top down the town council not to immediately react, mm. but to take a step back and say, okay, we hear you. Um, is there some way in which you can resolve this yourself before we step in, right? Or we'll arrange a meeting for the two parties, perhaps, right? Something like that. But just we need more general education, willingness um, by you know, the public, by the community, to be more tolerant about these things, right? And to to understand that we live within a community. We live with other people. We live very close to other people and we rely on other people too. If you suddenly, if you're alone at home or your elder parent is alone at home, you know, you want your neighbour to look out for this person. If your kid's playing in the corridor, right, we have this idea of eyes on the street that urban scholars talk about, right? And it's about how the community is safer when many people are watching out, right, looking. There's likelihood of theft, of, you know, any kind of deviant behaviour because, you know, there's a sense that, yeah, people are watching, right? And that's the kind of, I think, community spirit we should develop. The fact that our communities, our neighbourhoods are actually safer, you know, better places for everyone if we all give and take and look out for each other a little bit, right? So I think, yeah, this is not something that happens overnight, obviously, but, you know, over time, I mean, more public messaging, more education will hopefully encourage that. And, you know, rather than signs saying, do not do this or, you know, boarding up saying, please be considerate of your neighbours or, you know, uh, try to keep the noise down after 8pm. You know, something that's more, not so prescriptive, but perhaps more just an advisory. So people take more responsibility themselves, right? Mm -hmm. Rather than saying, oh, I cannot do this. But they say, okay, I will not do this because it's going to, you know, hurt my neighbours. So... I mean, kids are always going to be kids. You know, they are always going to want to play football. They're always going to want to play block catching. And I really do want to see, like, kids continuing to do that. So, 
as it stands, you know, there will always be people complaining about noise and stuff like that. So, you know, in more practical terms, what are some tangible ways that, you know, our building authorities can develop in these community spaces? So I had a reader who wrote in to me and he told me that, okay, how about we have dirt-proof walls or paint on walls that, you know, ha- uh, make it easy for dirt to come off? Or can we not have insulated walls? And also another thing that they said was, you know, maybe we can build basketball courts on top of uh, multi-storey car parks. You know, so in your opinion, what are some practical ways, you know, that these spaces can be developed that balance the needs of the community better? Mm-hmm. I, I mean, those are those are good suggestions, I think, about using and kind of changing the, the urban environment. But I, I think there's still a limit to those, right, given how spaces are so dense. And I think part of living in such communities and spaces is is also, you know, getting used to a little bit of, of noise, right? And, mm. and appreciating, actually, in fact, the, the kind of soundscape, perhaps, uh, the background soundscape. Like, you know, I was just telling... I was in Hong Kong last week and I was telling some of my friends, I was I heard the sounds of mahjong tiles. And this is a sound that I grew up with every afternoon, right? Uh, my neighbor's playing mahjong. And it, it's, it's not a particularly, I guess, horrible sound. You know, it's just part of the background noise of neighborhoods in Singapore, yeah. right? And perhaps, you know, as long as, I guess, kids are not, you know, making so much noise that it's waking someone up. You know, perhaps we should also be like, okay, you know, this is, this is part of my neighborhood, right? And part of it is being aware of noises and smells as part of being in Singapore, growing up in a multicultural, dense space like Singapore. So I think, yes, we we can think about how to keep the environment more beautiful and cleaner, but um, also develop our own tolerances, right? And appreciation for this type of dense urban living. Yeah. Absolutely, Lavi. I think we both completely agree with you on that note. Well, that's a wrap for In Your Opinion. Thank you again, Lavi, for your time and thoughtful input on this topic, which is clearly close to all our hearts. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure being here. I'm Sazali Abdulaziz. And I'm Gabrielle Chan. You can email us your thoughts on this issue. And if you'd like to read mine or Saz's articles and ST's opinion columns, all of these links will be available in our podcast show notes. Thank you for listening. Send your feedback to podcast at sph.com.sg. Find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or within our Straits Times app. Thanks for listening.